0: Hi, I'm Christine and I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together
1: listen, listen for, for the, the word.
0: word. Hi everybody, welcome to our podcast today. We are in the book of Luke. Uh, Chapter sixteen, verses one through thirteen, and if you were with us last week, we are both more well than we were, but um, feeling good enough to do a podcast. So um, here we are, and this is a, one of those unique uh, parables in Luke. So, Alan, take it away.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I have tried. I have mentioned all along, you know, that that we're getting into some some of the really challenging parts of Luke's gospel, and and this is perhaps one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, parable of Jesus. Uh, Because if you take it at face value, it seems to make Jesus say some things that are incredibly inconsistent with what Jesus clearly teaches elsewhere.
0: It it, it does. It does indeed. And I think it requires um, really some pulling apart and some kind of putting it into context. And I think the challenge is, is that when we're even reading it to our congregations, what they hear um, is not necessarily going to be what it really means. And so we, we have to unpack it for them. Absolutely. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. And
0: at least, you know, in my read, it, it really seems to me that con- context is really one of the big pieces yeah, here. But absolutely. Alan will give us I well, think, a little here, more.
1: I think I would agree. I think, and especially the narrative context in Luke's gospel, because you know, we're in this journey to Jerusalem, and it focuses on what faith, faithful discipleship in the kingdom of God looks like. And we've seen already several things, love for God and love for a neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, storing up treasure in heaven rather than towards oneself in the parable of the rich fool in chapter 12, practicing humility and open-handed hospitality, hospitality toward the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame in Luke 14. In short, it means aligning one's life with the kingdom of God. And I think these themes lay the groundwork for a proper understanding of the parable of the dishonest manager. I,
0: I agree. I agree. And When you come with it, with that mindset, at least it helps get you on the right kind yeah. of on the right path. Yeah. yeah. Well, so tell us about how, how this thing begins.
1: Well, it begins without any obvious interpretive clue, which is unique. I mean, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, Luke usually gives us kind of an interpretive clue at the beginning of the parables he, that are unique to <laughs> his gospel. But it doesn't. It just says, then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against him that this man was squandering his property. And maybe so just maybe the
0: her... clue is there was a rich man.
1: <laughs> well, I, I really actually I think that's a part of it, actually, because we've already heard enough about those who are rich in Luke's gospel to hear an echo of the great reversal that's mm-hmm. such a prominent theme. I mean, it started from the very beginning with Mary's Magnificat. I mean, the the Beatitudes in Luke's gospel, Mm -hmm. woe to you who are rich now. I mean, you can't can't get much more clear than that. Mm
0: -hmm. And then, of
1: course, the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. And so I think we have to understand that this man um, is a man whose identity stems from being rich rather than from the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I have the
1: challenges we've been talking about all along in this section of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is pushing people to to define their identity based on the kingdom of God.
0: Well, and I, I think this is one of the challenges, with, too, when you read it. And, and it, again, in today's world, we think, oh, a rich guy. Oh, a powerful and rich guy. And yeah. therefore has some authority. And here, I think you're right. All these contexts of rich that we've heard before. Um, that This guy is not necessarily that slippery fellow. Um,
1: no. well, um, and rich
0: guy. What, yeah. what
1: we're going to see in this passage is... This is really, I think, the crux of of this is probably the most negative statement in this in this section of Luke's gospel. The most negative statement about wealth that you're going to find in Luke's gospel.
0: Mm, wow, wow! All right, and so there's another guy, uh, a manager or a steward.
1: Yeah, and the Greek word is oikonomos. and and a man. It would have been probably a slave in the household who had risen to the ranks. To be entrusted with running the whole estate. And this particular manager or steward probably had earned his freedom at some point. He would have had access to the master's wealth and would have acted as his business agent, essentially. I mean, the master wouldn't have uh occupied himself with the day-to-day running of his estate. The the, right. the manager would have done that. Now we're not told explicitly how the manager was squandering his master's wealth, but dia scorpizo is the same verb that was used in the parable. Oh of wow. The Unfortunately, because of the way the Revised Common Lectionary is scheduled, I mean, even though that's the preceding passage to this one in in Luke's Gospel, right? So right. that's that's going to be a, a very distinct echo when you hear that word again. We, we treated the parable of the prodigal son, you know, weeks ago in the
0: in the Revised Common Lectionary. Right, but I remember that word and that use of prodigal, which is so often. Misunderstood, and uh, but when but when you understand that word correctly, and then you see it again here, it gives you this, this this sense that this guy was really being shady and yes, and and so and dealing in um, kind of icky stuff, you know.
1: Well, and I think we see the details. Uh, uh, we see more, uh, I guess, the gaps about this man's dishonesty are filled in by the details of the parable because yes. it's really not. It's not until it's not until the end of the parable. That he's called by Jesus the dishonest manager. <laughs> so that's something right. Right.
0: And that's of. I think that's important too, because at least some of the commentaries I was reading, some of the people were missing that and were suggesting that maybe that title that we give to it isn't appropriate. But yeah. I think that depends on I think they're giving more credit to this mm-hmm. servant than they should. Yeah, um some
1: people, some people call it the clever steward or the clever manager or something like that because they want to try to rehabilitate this guy
0: yeah <laughs> yeah they do they want to and yeah. i have to be honest part of when i was working through it myself that was one of the takes i was trying to do at first and then i i it did it just doesn't it, it to me it doesn't, doesn't work to do that know. it doesn't work with the entirety of the passage so i abandoned that but but I, there are others that keep with it so um yeah it sounds to me like this dishonest manager is probably well, a decent title
1: and, and some of the some of the uh, some of the big names in Luke's scholarship are uh, are associated with that approach so i mean it's i mean it is it is an option out there it's not one that i prefer
0: yeah but part um,
1: of the problem is with the parable itself it's anything but straightforward you know well the, true the man the master summoned the manager to give an accounting of his books and gave him notice that he was to be fired the dishonest manager re- responds with a monologue what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And so he announces a, play, a plan so that after he was dismissed, people may welcome me into their homes. Now, we should, I, I think we should not overlook the fact that this is similar to the monologue of the rich fool in, in Luke chapter 12, which contained not wisdom, but its opposite. And we hear a similar concern for self and not for God or others mm-hmm. in the monologue that this manager, where this manager comes up with his plan.
0: Well, and and I have to be honest, when I first read it, I kind of overlooked, I am not strong enough to dig and ashamed to beg, kind of like, I'm too good to do those things. And yeah, yeah. when I read it the second time, and those things really stuck out to me more. I'm like, this guy, he's too good to be an an average, normal person. And I thought that was kind of, I think that's kind of telling of his character, actually.
1: Really? Surely. So instead of using the time allowed to prepare the accounting that the master demanded, the manager uses it to secure his own future. The manager's plan was to discount the debts of the people who owed his master in order to create a debt of obligation to himself. So he reduced a debt of 100 jugs of olive oil to 50 Mm -hmm. and 100 containers a week to 80. And very likely, these were only two of many such transactions that would have taken place, because he was still the master's manager, the new, arrangement would, the new arrangements would have been binding. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, basically, it looks like this was the most dishonest act of all, in that he was defrauding his master of what he was due him in order to secure his own mm-hmm. future. But that's precisely the interpretive question here. Um, and, and this would be sort of the traditional interpretation of the, of the parable. But part of the problem is that the master catches him and then commends him for acting shrewdly. And so that's, I think, brings up some, you know, you think that mm-hmm. a master who caught a manager doing something like this would, you know, throw him in jail or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. he, wouldn't, he wouldn't respond the way he did, but the <laughs> fact that the master catches him and commends him for acting shrewdly, that just makes it all sort of complicated.
0: Well, it, it really remind it really makes me ask how, how, Deep is the deception amongst these characters. I mean, I'm not thinking either one is terribly savory. No, right. <laughs> you know no, what I mean? Um,
1: yeah, you're right.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and that, anyway. and that's
1: the way that's the way these things go, right? When you're dealing with lots of money, I mean, they call it creative account creative accounting for a reason. Basically, because of because of some of these difficulties, some have suggested that the amount released from the debtors would have represented the steward's commission.
0: And I've heard that sermon before.
1: Yeah, and they
0: they try to make oh no no he was really this good guy because that was just his commission he was taking.
1: Had a change of heart, and now he's now he's you know being generous. Yeah, and a a, a variant of this view is that the amount by which the debts were reduced represented interest on rather large business loans, perhaps involving mm-hmm. the production of commodities, and and uh, sort of a, a detail of this is that interest. Was charging interest was prohibited by Jewish law, but it it would appear that it would appear that that may have been circumvented by the repayment of the debt in commodities rather than cash. But again, you know, in this in this view, then the fact that the manager reduces the amount to be repaid is taken as a demonstration of the fact that he had repented of his greed uh, that had motivated him to inflate the debt with a large commission for himself in the first place. I'm not convinced by this I'm, alternative reading.
0: I'm not either. I'm not either, and because <clears throat> I sat in that for a little while, I want I, I, there was something about me that really wanted to make this steward more of a victim and really a really good guy, and yet it just doesn't work with the rest of the. I don't think with the rest of the scripture. So no, maybe no, you so could tell us why you you're on this page.
1: Well. You know, it may very well be that the amount the manager wrote off was a dishonest commission that he had been adding to his master's debtors. But the manager's supposed generosity was calculated in to to incur a debt of honor that would compel the master's debtors to provide him with hospitality after he was dismissed. Yes. So uh, to me, his motive is one that's self-interest all along. You know, it's not like he has this great change of heart. Right. He's He's doing more of the same. He's looking out for his own skin. Yes. And so again, but moreover, I think we have to take account of the fact that at the end of the parable, Jesus still calls him the dishonest manager, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's adikia is the, is the word, uh, and which means unrighteousness, or it could be translated wickedness or evil. And so I would say that actually the translation dishonest might be a bit too mild for the word adikia. Ah, uh, Gene Peterson, in the message, calls him the crooked manager. that that might be a little better. But I mean, a- again, adakia is a strong word in the New Testament. Mm. It, it, it's 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 not that he's just, oh, he fudged the books a little bit. This guy is wicked. This guy is evil. This guy is bent, you know? and and so I, I think we need to hear that in the word adakia.
0: well, and you said something about this in the. That- this is what Jesus refers to him as. Right, right. So I think that's a, a really a, a, a clue there is this isn't some made up name by, by right. us in the modern day people for it, which I think sometimes we assume, oh, this is G- what Jesus calls this guy. And so to, to try to make him redeem him, if you will, right. <laughs> it's probably not the best.
1: No, the best, I agree. The best
0: interpretation. I yeah. agree.
1: And furthermore, the fact that Jesus speaks of the unrighteous mammon, it's the mammon of Adikia, uh, perhaps better mm. wicked mammon, or yeah. uh, the, 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 the contemporary English version translates it wicked wealth. The NIV has worldly wealth. You know, again, this is not something good. This is something that is, that is seen as negative. Right. And then the fact that Luke appends Jesus saying that you cannot serve God and mammon in verse 13 here suggests that this man's actions were anything but commendable.
0: Right. I think they were so. very
1: much in character for someone motivated by greed, which Jesus has warned several times is incompatible with seeking the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then we move on. Right. So. Yeah um and you know as i was studying this um there's more problems with this parable than than just this interpretive issue right yeah
1: yeah one of the one of the questions is it's unclear where the parable ends and where jesus comment mm-hmm. begin um some have suggested that the parable ends with with 16:7 and that what follows in 16:8 constitutes Jesus commendation of the, the dishonest manager mm-hmm. uh, and and a Greek the Greek text simply says the lord hakurios the, the the lord or the master commended him uh, for acting shrewdly well again hakurios in the in the Greek New Testament especially in Luke's gospel oftentimes refers to Jesus as the lord but in this case and I think it's better to go with the majority of the interpreters who see Verse sixteen eight is part of the parable, and sixteen for verse sixteen eight a is part of the parable. While sixteen eight b constitutes Jesus' comments, mm-hmm. and I think it seems more likely in light of the fact that "curios" ha- in sixteen a would refer most naturally to the master of the stew, mm-hmm. master of the manager in the parable, because "curios" is used several times right. in the parable.
0: So, Alan, if you have eighteen a in front of you, maybe you can read what that exact reference is that we are. Um, giving to the, the parable, if you will.
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, and, and in the New Revised Standard, and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So the question is, is that Jesus commenting? It, 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 and the, or should it, should it be translated, and the Lord commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, or is it his own master? It's mm-hmm. his own master. Right, I think right. yeah, I yeah. agree with the way the New RSV translates it there, that it's, it's, it's the master of the parable. that. Right. Was, so we're still in the parable in that portion of the verse. But right after that, um, when, when Jesus says, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light, that's very likely where Jesus' comments begin. Mm-hmm.
0: It is an interesting construction, though. I will say it, 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 it's not as clear as we want it to be. Uh, and you not. kind of wonder... Well, and I, I, I get a question I have for you as an expert is: Is this, this really the same in all the different and um, all the different te- ancient texts? Or, uh, how it's written or how it's composed here with Luke?
1: I'm not aware of any significant variant there. No. Okay, yeah. mm. I'm not aware yeah.
0: of any significant variant. Yeah, it I, is a strange construction.
1: I mean, it's it's just hakurios, which which is used in right. Luke's gospel a lot, and normally used in Luke's gospel. Are, are predominantly used in Luke's gospel to refer to Jesus.
0: I, we want it clear somehow, but I, oh. I mean, it, it didn't bother me when I read it myself. I didn't take issue with it until I started reading commentators talking about it. And um, so. I, well, yeah. like I
1: said, the, the word kurios appears throughout the parable to refer to this master of the manager. Right. I think we should take it here in that same vein.
0: I think so. It makes most sense to me that way. Sure yeah um so then
1: but the further question then relates still relates to this this part of uh, the parable in in the first part of verse eight you know is the commendation that the master gives to this dishonest manager straightforward or is it ironical i mean because that kind of affects one's interpretation of the manager's actions i think mm-hmm. if the master is truly commending the manager then there must have been something commendable about his actions <laughs> there are a lot of people who 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 follow that approach um in fact um the english bible translation reflects some of that difference of opinion because some uh, like the king james and and the american standard version and even tom Wright's new testament for everyone say you know the, the the that the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted wisely and particularly uh, a couple of translations in the Catholic tradition, the New American Bible and the Catholic edition of the Revised Stan- Standard Version, say that the dishonest manager had acted prudently. Mm. I think there you see you see an attempt to write into the translation, sort of this effort to rehabilitate this guy. I think so
0: too. Did
1: something right.
0: I, I think so too. And and uh, this was a thing for the reformers. They got caught up with that as well. They they. Even in this small place, they're like, "Oh, that, but, but but this was a good way for him to act." But um,
1: not really. He that's was not how I read dishonest. it. <laughs> no, he was still being dishonest, and all he was exactly. doing was looking out for himself. Yeah,
0: exactly. I, I, I exactly, and I didn't read it that way. I. I I read it as this is a, this is a story. That people are going to nod their heads. Say, oh yeah. Yeah. That's how
1: I think. Yeah. I think it's hardly likely that this is meant as, you know, yes, this, this, this manager did something really commendable. Uh, I, I think the master's comments must be taken as kind of ironical in that the master is recognizing he's been outwitted, you know, in a sense, you yeah. got me, yeah. you know, you pulled one over, And so he recognizes the shrewdness of the the manager looking out for his own interest. I really think that's more likely. And and we should note, really, that the word group uh, uh, in the Greek New Testament and the Septuagint around shrewd or shrewdly um, Mm -hmm. is ambivalent, even in the Hebrew Bible. So it can refer to wisdom that comes from God in the Proverbs, but it can also refer to people who are sort of crafty. And even, even uh, you know, it's the word that's used to describe the serpent in the garden as the most shrewd or yeah. the most crafty of all God's creatures. So it's an ambivalent word, uh, and, and I think I think again, some English Bibles try to sort of make it a little less ambivalent by by translating it wisely or prudently or the. Common English Bible says cleverly, I don't really buy that myself. I think shrewdly, some version of shrewd is, is, is right here because I think it's meant to have that kind of sense of, yeah, you, you, you thought that out. You came up with a good plan. You, your scheme worked and, and, and you, really, you really pulled one over on me is the idea.
0: Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So
1: then at this point, Jesus begins his comments. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I think this is perhaps where all the interpretive questions come to focus, because on the surface, again, if you just read it kind of superficially, it would seem that Jesus was also commending the manager for his shrewdness. But I think here again, we must keep in mind the narrative context of Luke's gospel, and especially the themes that we've already seen.
0: Yes, 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 yes. I agree 100 um, percent. Keep it into that context of what's going on. I think that's very intentional of Luke. Jesus is, Jesus is
1: teaching his disciples. He's, he's not just teaching his disciples. He's really showing them what it looks like to be someone who's really affiliated with the kingdom of God and devoted to the kingdom of God in terms of their, their willingness to give without receiving, their willingness to offer hospitality to those who can't repay, those right. kinds of things.
0: Right, right, right. That's the kind mm-hmm. of
1: approach to, to possessions that Jesus is advocating. And it's very consistent.
0: Uh, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So I thought
1: we would dig into some of the details of that comment since it's so so important. And, you know, he talks about the children of this age being um, more shrewd in in dealing with their own generation. And and it was commonplace in that day to distinguish between this age and the age to come. mm -hmm. Uh, The Judaism of Jesus' day, that was a commonplace. And it was also carried over in the New Testament. This age was characterized by faithlessness, wickedness, and absence of love and greed in the New Testament. And so the master, being one of his own generation, that is, somebody who was equally committed to the values of this age, would naturally commend the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. But that's not the point Jesus is making. I don't think <laughs> he's saying that this guy's action is exemplary.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. It's all, it's all tied up with the the action is commendable only within the rules of this world, not the kingdom.
1: Right, exactly. Right? You know, it's exactly. like,
0: oh yeah, yeah, he's not violent. That's, that's that's how some of really the smartness in, in the world works. That's not that's not God's kingdom. That's exactly, yeah. exactly,
1: yeah. And so then he further comments in verse nine: uh, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. And again, a superficial reading might suggest that Jesus was recommending that his disciples use wicked mammon, the way, or dishonest wealth, as the NRSV translates it, like the manager did. But I think to the contrary, the practice of wisdom on the part of the children of light would result in a very different kind of behavior. And so here's the point of comparison. This is why Jesus tells the parable. The point of comparison with the dishonest manager is not what he does, but it's the fact that he's very thoughtful, you know, he, he definitely plans this out very well, right? And so the idea is that the disciples are to be equally prudent about using whatever wealth they have in this world in the way Jesus has instructed. So, in the opposite way that the manager used his access to wealth,
0: right? They're to right. Give
1: without expecting to receive anything in return, according to Luke chapter six and the Sermon on the Plain, they're to extend generous hospitality to those who cannot repay. Um, in in Luke chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 14. So so that's I think that's that hopefully that might clarify a little bit. What's you know when you, when you think about this parable you think well why did Jesus even tell this story? What's the point of comparison? Right right. So the point of comparison is not how this dishonest manager uh acted with regards to wealth. The point is that he he came up with a plan and he was he he followed through with his plan and he was he was intentional about all of that. And so right you know he's saying you know it seems like the children of this age do that better than than the children of the light and and so as, be as children of light and be as intentional about carrying out you know your um using your wealth in a way that Jesus has already instructed is consistent with the kingdom of
0: god right right that is exactly how, how i understood it um and and i think what is, to me, stood out, though, depending on, you know, I, I kind of have my lens in mind and how I'm looking at it, but depending on how you approach this passage really has great repercussions onto what you're, what you're telling your, you know, what you're preaching, right? It's exactly. got two different, there's two different, very different interpretations here.
1: Yeah. Uh, and one view suggests that the steward acted unselfishly or act, actually repented of his greed. And and again, Joseph Fitzmaier, uh, who was kind of the dean of Luke's commentaries in in this mm-hmm. era? You know, he, he, yeah, I
0: think know. everyone will know Fitzmaier. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he advocated that point of view, but and so as a result, the master commended him, and Jesus pointed to his unselfish generosity as the appropriate use of the disciple's possessions. But another view suggests that the that the that the manager acted dishonestly in reducing his master's debt, but in doing so, secured a future that the master could not possibly revoke. And as a result, the, manis, the master recognized, perhaps grudgingly, the steward's shrewdness. And, and I think that's the one that I'm, I'm advocating for. Mm-hmm. So then Jesus used the story to commend the steward's foresight, his focused action, his intentionality to his disciples. But I think the following comments, especially in verse 10 through 13, show that he expects his disciples to take a completely opposite course of action regarding their use of wealth. And I tend to follow this, this
0: line yep. of interpretation. And that's where I, I'm on that same page. I wish I was on a different one, Alan. We could debate, we could fit it out. But I'm, uh, I'm with you on this. I think this is the, I think this is the key. Otherwise, um,
1: otherwise, it. it makes Jesus contradict himself.
0: I agree, it, and it doesn't fit within the context of the journey to Jerusalem, and yeah. um, I think it doesn't fit into the context of that the way things are done in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so, I just think that it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, and I realize, I realize that the, so to some people listening to a sermon like this might think that we're taking Jesus' words and turning them into something else. But I think that's where verses 10 through 13 come in, because I think here Jesus kind of focuses in more clearly on his take on wealth as it relates to discipleship. Um, those who follow him are to be faithful, especially with, un, I guess, dishonest wealth wicked wealth, whatever you want to call it, wicked mammon, because that will determine their level of faithfulness or dishonesty in mm-hmm. other more important matters. And, and faithfulness with wicked wealth or with, with um, dishonest wealth means canceling debts, without giving without the thought of receiving, and offering generous hospitality to all. It means following the path of life defined by the kingdom of God. On the other hand, dishonesty means to act like the manager in the parable out of self-interest rather than love for God and love for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of what we're looking at there um mm-hmm. is that um in, in 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 that section Jesus really comes back and and whether Luke, you obviously Luke is putting this together and so it's interesting I think that Luke puts these verses with this parable Um, because although some of a lot of this in in verses 10 through 12 uh, verses 10 and 11 i think um yeah no verse 10 through 12 verse 10 through 12 is is also kind of unique to 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 luke's gospel verse 13 is a verse that um is found also in matthew's gospel Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sermon on the mount you might recall that no slave can Mm -hmm. serve two masters for a slave will either hate one and love the other be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and well. That's almost word for word the same as as Matthew 6 uh, 24. But I think here it's almost like it makes more sense. These statements in verses 10 through 13 make, make more sense in connection with the parable, but they also help make the parable make more sense, if that makes sense to you.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. And,
1: and so, you know, we see the full force, I think, here of Luke's. Or at least Jesus in Luke's gospel, negative assessment of wealth. If one does not use it faithfully, wealth becomes something idolatrous that forces one to choose between wealth and fidelity to God. And and so you know this i this whole idea of you know you you cannot serve God and Mammon or you cannot serve God and wealth. It makes more sense, I think, in this context than it does in Matthew. Um, and I, I, I think I think Jesus is recognizing that. Um, using wealth may be a necessity in this world, but in the kingdom of God, it must be used in a manner consistent with the values of the kingdom. And, and yep, yep. I, think, I think then that the point of this confusing passage is that those who follow Jesus are to be as intentional about the way they use wealth as the manager was in the way that he used mm-hmm. the master's wealth. But clearly, expect, Jesus expects his disciples to use whatever wealth they have in the opposite way to seek first the kingdom. And to promote the values of the kingdom. Yeah,
0: I agree. I agree. Well, I, I'm. I, I'm. This is one of those ones where you know when I worked through it and I came up with something very similar, um, but it took a lot of work. And so I'm just so appreciative of your real careful analysis and really in some of the important details of the Greek here that that just help kind of, um, kind of emphasize this interpretation. Um, Apart from, I think this other one that kind of, kind of makes light of the steward's behavior, you know, and, and that can get you in a lot of trouble, I think. And so, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think
1: people, I think people sometimes wind up at the same place, you know, because the steward, the the the, the steward or the manager is 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 being generous with wealth, and, right. and that's that's. So but it's people, dishonest
0: wealth. I mean, that's the problem right. with it, and right? It, it
1: doesn't, it doesn't really take into consideration the fact that in in Luke's gospel. Wealth in and of itself is part of the problem, and not—it's right. not—it's not, it's not just the manager; it's the wealth itself, and so right. that's part of the part of the issue. I,
0: I think I think that to me, the other interpretation takes us—it it makes us go outside of what the information is actually given. Say, well, but we don't know. I bet that was his money, then, and he's scraping off the top, and then he's giving away, and that's okay because, but. It, it it it's 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 putting more into it, I think, than is actually there. I think the challenge the, the challenge with this interpretation, though, is saying, yeah, but Jesus is drawing this picture that listeners are going to draw into because they're going to understand. Oh, yeah, that's how the world works. Exactly. And I think sometimes we. And I think it's exactly what was what, what he was doing there, and yet we want to be more literalist about it. So then we add stuff to it. So it's it's weird. It's we talked it about
1: that. We talked about that a couple of years ago when we were dealing with some of the parables in Matthew. You know, we're not we're not comfortable somehow taking, um, uh, really expecting Jesus to, to to speak ironically in a parable. But I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's this too. parable is about the way the world works, and and the point is you who are children of light, you who are people aligned with the kingdom, you, you know that I have already laid out for you a different path. And that's the yeah. path yeah. Of, of canceling debts and giving without receiving and offering hospitality freely to all. Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. Well, thank you. We'll come back and look at what the reformers do.
1: Sounds good. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy uh, tell us what she found with the Reformers. So, um, Christy, take it away.
0: Sure. Well, obviously, um, not only is this parable challenging for us today, but so too was it during the Reformation. Um, and you name it, they've created the interpretation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I kind of identified two main threads. Um, one is using an allegorical approach. This is one we didn't really do, which is looking at the rich man as God and the steward as human beings, as an example of a human being. Um, and then the other is that this is a commentary on the way the world works and is not how God's kingdom, kingdom works, which is very much actually what, what we did today. Yeah. Um, there is um, some d- debate in in the first scenario, uh, this 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 um, this idea, this allegorical approach, whether the actions of the steward are good or bad in that context. But even if the steward is in the end bad, they all agree that treating the neighbor well is a good thing. So right. he and there's some redemptive qualities about him and sharing with the neighbor. And even even Calvin thought that was okay. But and I think that's one of the even wealth, whatever you have, sharing it is is a good thing. So, right. um, right. um, but uh, so in other words, it, it, even though the steward's mismanagement was reprehensible, he was still able to produce good out of what God gives.
1: Yeah,
0: I think it pushes it a little, but that is what some of them came up with.
1: It's a bit um, of a stretch, I think.
0: I yeah, I do too. Now, those who see this as a commentary on being um, a worldly example read it differently, and and this is this is an example that I'm getting from the really the the main Lutheran scholars and Calvin. They see it as a commentary how things work in this world versus how things work in the kingdom. And regardless of the overall interpretive framework, um, I'll agree um, that. Uh, Uh, treating your neighbor well is a good move. Um, um, Calvin's work, um, Calvin's work definitely shows this. Um, In other words, at the end of this, they confuse the action of the neighbors with their own thinking that they should, despite their own sources of wealth, treat others well, and that others will serve them in heaven. Now, there's a next jump there where there's this idea that um, what you do on earth affects how you're treated in heaven, and uh, you can see where they're pulling that out of the text. Um, sure. The problem so
1: is, you into the heavenly homes or something exactly. like that. Exactly.
0: The problem is, I think it rings of works righteousness, and um, I was kind of actually surprised by some of the things Calvin said. And so the reformers are working hard to make sense of this passage. Um, Um, within that framework of grace alone. Um, And Calvin ultimately sides with those who see this as a contrast between the earthly kingdom and the godly godly kingdom. But he does say these things that surprise me. Um, He um, emphasizes this cause and effect between action and the afterlife. So while he indicates that a response to God should be out of grace, he does claim, quote, the Lord lays down a method of procedure which will protect us against being treated with rigor when we come to render our account. <laughs> a sense of, about expected behavior, right? And that if you are behaving well, you are rewarded for it. And he actually is aware of it, but he, he is aware of it, which is even funnier. And he comes out and says, oh, but, but um, he counters this. He says, look, if you're saved, we are supposed to live in sobriety and temperance. We should not, says Calvin, abuse the gifts of God, but rather in responding to the poor and those in need, God acknowledges that we have acted in his name. So what is interesting is that he views this parable as a kind of call to action for believers, that there is expectation that we should respond in action as people of faith.
1: Well, it sounds like, I mean, he, he came to the same <laughs> kind of uh, end, you know, end result that we did, uh, but it sounds like he's having a hard time with with giving was sort of reading the parable in an ironical way. <laughs> he really yes. wants he, he has to make it literal. And he has to make it um, you know at face value because it just doesn't make sense for him to to think of Jesus spe- using an ironical parable.
0: I think you're right, and I, I think that, that you hit it on the head. And what's interesting about it is you feel I kind of feel like in reading his commentaries, which are finished and published, that you're kind of reading notes on it, and he can't quite quite draw the appropriate conclusion. So he kind of has, he's kind of going back and forth. You can see where his theology is conflicting against his um, reading of it. And, and yet I think Alan has it right. He can't quite make that next step to say, oh, Jesus is being ironic. No. Yeah. Um, so as I said, his comments change a little when he moves into what I call the play-by-play analysis, where he kind of goes through each individual verse. And I think there's an important relationship between um, faith and action he's trying to get across. But again, I'm not sure he ties it in. He claims that in this parable, to find meaning in every small detail would be absurd. I think and, that's and fair. That's
1: a, that's, yeah, I mean, th- that's what the allegorists do.
0: Exactly. Exactly. His overall interpretation of this is not that we should be like the unjust steward, and not, but that they are um, shrewd with the ways of the world. But he then goes on to say that here in these industrious people of the world who are really good at living in this world, and yet versus those children of light who are actually not good at acting and living in, in this human sphere, claiming that yeah, their job is to be then rouse them as disciples to live as children of God within the sphere that they have been called to, to live. Sure. Um, according to Calvin, Jesus, quote, charges the faithful with criminal indifference and not providing for the future. Hmm. They are not engaging in quote, hope of eternal blessedness. Hmm. So it's really for him, this kind of, and all of you believers, all of you that are, are saved of the elect, you're not, you're not living up to it.
1: Well, I mean, this whole idea of storing up treasure for yourself in heaven is one that is, is just maddeningly hard to get a handle on, I think for most of us.
0: Exactly. So then going on in terms of making friends, right, um, he's going back then kind of to the other I- interpretation. It's the embodiment of human charity to show mercy. It is not that we make friends on earth so that they show us mercy, mercy in heaven, but rather that this is our call as, as God's people. So he, he's back to praising the steward again, but Again, that, that kind of mismatch that we see. But this is a this is a self-serving thing for this steward, you know, he's doing it out of his own interest, not out of their interest.
1: He doesn't care about the other people at all. No,
0: not, not at all. But I thought that was interesting. And um, um, I just feel like there's this, this interesting imbalance. So the next paragraph um, Calvin talks about wealth and how God looks at wealth. And he goes out of his way to say that riches in themselves are not evil and that is kind of an important point within the context of the Reformation, because really? there are so many folks that say the riches themselves are evil, and therefore you should not have any. You know, and we see all of these attempts at these uh, utopias that have no wealth involved with them and giving up all your wealth. And,
1: well, but, but he said, Calvin and the other Reformers are busy building the Protestant work ethic, right? <laughs> so.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, um, but he says that they can draw us toward deceit, pride, luxury, or other traits that lead us aware from sharing with those in need. Riches can lead us toward sin. Um, so it's important that um, God does not want us to give a sacrifice from money untamed unjustly. What the steward did is really the opposite of what God would want us to do. So now he's back to criticizing the steward back and yeah. forth, back and forth. Um, um, again, I think, I think he wants to emphasize the giving aspect as being good, but saying, look, you can't go steal stuff from someone else and give it to someone else. That's not, that would be bad. So right. in terms of verse 10, one who is faithful in little um, is also faithful in much. Calvin identifies these as proverbs from the day. So that this would be something that people would have heard in the scripture and known what it meant. Um, and the general truth was Calvin claims is, quote, proper stewardship of spiritual graces. Um, in other words, this is kind of obvious to people that they should be giving of what they have, even if it is little. Um, the opposites, those who can't be trusted with small things are not entrusted with the gifts of the gospel. So while it's not works righteousness, there's a correlation between behavior on earth and salvation, which I thought was interesting because he doesn't want us to see that. That makes. Sense?
1: it does, and I would argue that that's true to biblical teaching. I mean that 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 those who know the grace of God in their lives in salvation it's going to make a difference in the way they live that's a I think that's a uh, that's something that's taught throughout the bible
0: um and then he continues um in verse twelve about talking about that riches do not belong to us but are bestowed on us as we are stewards of them. I love it. I liked this, actually. We should look at everything in the world as belonging to another, and therefore we are supposed to bestow them onto others. So he does suggest that spiritual richer, riches, quote, are our own because enjoyment of them is everlasting. So unlike it, spiritual versus physical things here, physical things we should never look at as belonging to ourselves, but belonging to the whole um, and that they're gifts to give to the whole, but spiritual riches those are our own; they yeah. come with us forever, and the point is that those who are bad stewards of earthly blessings quote would not be faithful guardians of spiritual gifts
1: yeah i you know I didn't bring this out um because my section was so long but but um my guy Joel Green, that I like so much uh he 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 brings this out in verse about verse twelve also, and he says that Jesus is drawing on a form of stewardship that's firmly rooted in the Old Testament understanding of Yahweh as the true owner and conferrer of all land and property. These are given to human beings to manage, and it is to Yahweh that all humans are and will be accountable. And its corollary then is that property and land are to be used for the good of all. And, yeah. and so, you know, and that's something that undergirds the whole idea of giving and wealth and stewardship in the Bible in general.
0: Mm. So it, go Calvin here. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I like that. All right. So I kind of left that alone. Um, and then I moved on then to the discussion of the Pharisees, because I actually really am entertained by this. Um, because he claims that the Pharisees do not only understand what Luke means, but represent themselves, the broader worldview, that the rich are happy and that wealth is the goal. They mm. stand for the way the world is.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm you know, if, if we were to go on in the next, next verse, verse 14 says the Pharisees who were lovers of money hurled heard all of this and they ridiculed him. And, um, you know, he goes on, then Jesus goes on to tell the parable, of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, which is what we'll deal with next week. But it, it's, you know, it's, that's all of this, I think is directed sort of, at least indirectly, if not directly, toward the Pharisees for their love of love of money.
0: Yeah, it, well, exactly. And so he's like, look, he um, claims, um, uh, Luke claims that Jesus shows us, or Calvin claims that Jesus shows us that we must continue to stand up against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the ungodly. And then, of course, he makes a stab at the Roman Catholic Church, claiming that they are the Pharisees. And of course, I, I of course, had to quote him here, but he, he 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 says that to the quote um, mitered prelates that their hostility to the gospel arises from the severity with which it attacks their hidden vices.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: I mean, it's so funny because you're going through this analysis that even if you don't agree or you could see that it's dated, it still is this kind of nice biblical analysis. And then he takes a stab right at his current age, right? Sure. And it just it. It just strikes you as it, it just strikes you as is like you're all of a sudden taken to that time frame and taken into his his frustration and anger. It's it's so interesting. Um, and then ultimately, he said, look, but, but God knows your hearts. And then he talks about how judgment of human beings um, who can judge by external matters, but God who actually knows our hearts. Sure. So um. So that's the parable, and I was thinking, well, hmm, what are some of, what? What's the under what? What's the bigger issue with this? And to me, I think that the challenge was their whole discussion of um, of of grace and works, you know, and how that works together. And I feel like they are working this out throughout the the Reformation period. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So one who is saved, a child of the light, is supposed to act within the expectations of one who is saved. And it's kind of an interesting, because it's not what you do that allows you to be saved, but it is how you are judged. And, and so it's a strange situation, because I think there's a, a separation between the church that, and and. And the theology, and then kind of looking at its kind of practical implications. And so we find in the Reformation that your doings um, are central to the Reformation, even if it's not how you are saved, it's yeah. still how you're judged.
1: Well, there's a similar tension in the New Testament because all the New Testament writers talk about a judgment according to what you've done. But they also em, they also uh, emphasize salvation by grace through faith apart from works. Right. <laughs> I mean, so, so it seems like somehow in their minds those two are consistent that you can be judged according to what you've done, but you can be saved by grace.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think when you're talking about the practicality of the church, if you are saved, you are supposed to be reflecting s- someone who's saved and doing the kinds of things that would God, would the call on your heart. So your heart would, would cause you to act in certain ways. Um, none of it's going to be perfect because you're human. But what's interesting is in practicality, the church then is looking out as a body on the behavior of its, of its uh, people saying, well, are they consistent with, ha- with how saved people would act? And if they aren't consistent with it, then they must not be saved and therefore, we have power to judge them. So it's a strange thing. And I could show this over and over and over in different ways with different groups. But I thought, I'm just going to pull out the Westminster Confessions. Um, it just in kind of how it's used there. So it's in, in, the, in the Westminster Confessions, it says, that good works are, quote, fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus. So what you do is reflected, is is a reflection of your salvation. Sure. But, so... um, there's also in there that works done by those who are saved are pleasing to the Lord, who is pleased to accept the reward that which is sincere, even though imperfect. But works done by those by the reprobate cannot please God. Hmm. So, now, <laughs> again, you respond, supposedly, you're responding out of your salvation already. Yeah. So, what an interesting thing. Okay. But then at practical side, so that's the kind of religious side, but the practical side is God has ordained several magistrates to be under him, and through them they have the power of the sword, they can punish evildoers. So this is people that can do bad can be punished within the context of the law should not limit the pre-practice of faith in any denomination. Interesting. Yeah. And that the church has a right to censure s- sinners. They can shut, quote, the kingdom by word and action. They can do this to deter others, purging out what might infect all, vindicate the honor of Christ. They may excommunicate or deny the Lord's Supper. So this is interesting. It seems to be in this tradition, since instead of oh, your good behavior is supposed to be a reflection of God. So and if you're saved, you're gonna be doing those things. So you're not gonna, you're not gonna to put too much emphasis or award on that. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna put a lot of emphasis on all the bad things that people are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, but those they're obviously not saved. So we obviously have to have to deal with that, get rid of that situation. So then I'm like, well, are people that acting good? So they're not being attacked. It's a strange. I mean, it's it's, well, it's not I, perfect here.
1: It, it is, and uh, I I find myself. You know, one of our confessions. I forget which one it is at this point. Talks about the church's own complicity in in injustice that has taken place in society. I I, I think that mindset is very far away from the Westminster Divines. I don't think they could have conceived of a person who was truly Christian uh, right. being complicit in injustice or right. in anything exactly. Evil. Because if you're if you're doing evil by definition, that means you're reprobate.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's the big thing. I think what you see here is um, I think what you see here is a pre-enlightenment kind of uh, approach to scripture. And I think and some people that tell me, oh, I could never be Presbyterian because of Calvin, because of have not allowed themselves to realize that our reforming tradition has has taken bigger steps beyond this. But I would say that during the Reformation, while some of these ideas are, are, are wonderful, uh, you know, these ideas that, oh my gosh, salvation by grace alone, there are still problems that they really have not worked out, even by the Westminster Confessions, that lead us into this kind of judgmental space. And I would argue that that still stays with us till the day as we come and look at like our discipline sure. section of the, sure. well, of the book of order
1: there. i mean it's it's not just in the discipline section of the book of order it's also i think uh just in in people's attitudes you know mm-hmm. um um and you know um uh the word that 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 comes to my mind is rigid
0: yeah 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 but, i but agree rigid
1: in a sense of i'm right and you're wrong no matter just i'm right because i'm saved and you're wrong because you're not and so whatever i do is okay and whatever you do is not okay
0: right 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 and it it is it's a strange and so and how does one base their judgment on on that salvation because they're not doing the things they expect to, that fits within whatever that category is right so right. and and it, it does it becomes a it, it can become very judgmental and I think that's one of the limitations, right? I, I think I think as they're trying to get at, at, at what at what Jesus wanted or Jesus called on us, and I think they I think I think they are trying to reach that, but yet these kind of practical or means come in and they they impact it, and so you get this you get you get new problems. You have new problems that we have to solve that I think we're still running into on a regular basis. I think it's still part of the challenge of our of our tradition and our faith. Yeah.
1: Okay. thanks.
0: Thank you. So, friends, we're going to just talk about some ideas that we're thinking about in regards to this. um, this parable, and you know, I think the question mark is wealth, and I think most of us don't feel very rich. And so, when we think about when we think about wealth, I think we think about that. Maybe they're talking about somebody else, and um, I, I think I think that's an interesting place to start, Alan. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. I think one of the challenges with um, the Bible's teachings about wealth is that it really is meant to um, challenge us all. It's really meant to, to address us all. And yet we have this kind of, uh, almost bias, you know, that, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can with my, with my possessions, with my wealth, with what I have, but it's the, it's the people who are really rich. They're the ones who are the problem. And if only they would, they would, you know, do the right thing, then things would be better. And, and that's kind of a, a, almost an adventure in missing the point because the point is not about pointing the finger at somebody else or, or talk or looking at what somebody else is doing with their wealth. The point is, is we look at our own attitudes towards wealth in view of the kingdom of God and in view of, of, uh, what Jesus has has taught us. So it's, and it's very challenging, you know, because we just, you know, we just had the passage recently that unless you give up, All your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. (laughs) And so, you know that, especially in Luke's gospel, this is this is challenging. I think it is. It is. It's just as challenging to say you cannot serve God and wealth. You know, you're going to love the one and hate the other.
0: Right. Well, and I think, and I think if we really look deep. these are the issues that we deal with on a regular basis. Right. And when, when am I responding to this pureness of heart? And when am I responding out of thinking about my own individual money? And, 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 and am I really giving to someone in need or and help because I'm hoarding it for myself? And I, it's an interesting, it's a challenge. And I, I think that the question here is, I mean, if, even if you give, but you're sitting there and you're like, Oh, I gave money, but i didn't give as much as i could or i i'm still male they didn't really deserve it i just gave it because i think it really has more to do with our hearts and how they're how they're forming and and that 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 cheerful giver you know if if, if, okay so i gave away half my wealth but if i'm angry about it i didn't really i didn't really solve the problem wealth is still controlling me
1: yeah yeah and you know i think it's 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 that you know calvin calvin says you know riches are not in themselves an evil but they tend to draw us toward deceit pride luxury and other traits that lead us away from sharing well i mean i think one of the more insidious issues is the that question of do we use our 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 finances do we use what we have in in sort of a calculated self-interested way or do we use what we have out of that open-handed generosity just right. you know freely giving uh, And 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 not expecting anything in return, and, and
0: exactly
1: yeah. I, I mean, I'll have to admit. I mean, Jesus, the ideal that Jesus sets for us is a pretty high bar, and I don't. It's know a really high bar. Live up to it fully, but I think that's the question: is is our attitude one of cal- calculated self interest, or is it right. one of of giving without thought to receiving anything in return? Right.
0: Well, and I think that's it, and I think. Right. It's not necessarily, not necessarily the amount given, but rather that, that pureness of heart that, that you come by what you give. things. And it may be, I mean, here it's, it's, it's physical wealth. And we think of in terms of money, but it could be other things of yourself, you know, um, it could be of, of, of things you inherited that could go to somebody else instead of sitting in the, sit there, or um, there's just lots of, Lots of ways or even just time. I mean, even though this wasn't specifically towards that, how many often do you like, "Oh, I don't have time to help with somebody, and so well, I give all that time and you'd get grumpy about it and I, I find a lot of it a mindset a mindset, I, a mindset that, uh, that that takes place, and it really requires spiritual contemplation and spiritual growth in order to give of self and give of of what you have you know
1: yeah i think i think you're right i mean it comes from the heart and and the question is you know where is your heart is your heart really oriented towards uh protecting yourself or looking out for yourself or taking care of yourself or is your heart oriented toward well freely freely i have received freely i you know freely i have received freely i'm going to give you know mm-hmm. i have been i have been given such grace i'm going to extend that grace and mercy to others you know and mm-hmm. um um you know uh, yeah, as you say i mean it's it's i think even the best of us you know I mean, it, it, obviously in in ministry we we come to this from a motivation of giving to other people but even the best of us are gonna have days where we're gonna be a little resentful of all that we've given and feeling like it's not appreciated. Um and yeah. because that's just that's just human. That's just our human nature. Right, right. We all get there at times. But I, I I I agree. I think it's a condition of the heart, really. It's a matter of yeah. you know, can you have can you have these things and not be enticed by them? as if your identity is is bound up with them and and i think that's that's part of the key as well you know that we recognize that our identity is bound up with with the kingdom of god our identity is bound up Mm -hmm. with the love of love of god that that we have in christ and and that can never be taken away from us and so when you have that kind of of confidence i think in 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 um god's love for us and in god's love for you as a person then I think it frees you to be able to give more willingly, whether it's whether it's of your wealth or whether it's of your time or what or whether it's, you know, whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. And um, I guess I guess the beauty of this all is that, you know, I think that's part of our sanctification process is that kind of challenge um, and that kind of accepting, fully accepting um um, God's uh, call on your life, you know, and it, and it, it's, it's always that battle. So I think it's, I I think we can look at, I, I think it's really hard to get hard, be really hard in yourself too. And you're finding yourself being really stingy or really, and just backing off, taking a deep breath and saying, okay, well, you know, what spiritual exercise is going to do that are going to help me let go of, let go of this, this, whatever is hanging on this, this obsession with wealth this obsession with time. Um, so I can give freely and, uh, sure. Um, yeah,
1: sure. Well, thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word.
0: word.